Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources com or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And I do also want to thank our sponsors for the second hour of today's show. Our sponsors are Timmins Gold, Paramount Gold, Sand Gold Corp., and Uranium Energy Corp. Well, I'm really pleased to have back with me again today Todd Wood. Todd was with us, uh, well, I guess it was last week. Uh, but for the benefit of those who didn't listen to that show, let me just give you a little of Todd's background. Uh, he is a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy. He has been an aeronautical engineer and an Air Force pilot, and he flew for the 20th Special Operations Squadron uh, that started uh, Desert Storm. Uh, in 1991 to 1994, he was active in classified missions in support of the counterterrorism under the control of the National Command Authority and deployed throughout the world. In 1994, Todd joined an investment bank, and during this second career, he became highly knowledgeable and Emerging markets, uh, fixed income, and uh, traveled a great deal internationally with with his focus on the Caribbean. He became uh, acutely aware of the consequences of economic decisions and their effect on national and economic security. And I think this is a topic that doesn't get nearly enough attention uh, in the mainstream press or or among some of the uh, the fringe element that uh, this show is probably associated with, but uh, it is uh, something we, we've been talking to Todd about and expect we'll talk some more today about it. Uh, Todd loves to tell stories, and he's told a really good one in uh, the thriller, The Currency, which I just finished reading. And when I first talked to Todd, I just sort of scanned it uh, and hadn't really dug into it. But once I got into it, I started reading it and couldn't put it down. I'm not one, my wife will tell you, who reads novels. I think, you know, I might have read Moby Dick in high school because I had to, or, you know, whenever we had to read some of these things. But I've never felt I had time for novels. But in fact, 
currency, I think, you can see enough of reality, enough of what's going on in today's world, uh, that it's really worth your time, even if you're one of these that don't feel you have the luxury of of, uh, of reading just for sheer uh, enjoyment and pleasure. This, this, I think, currency combines both uh, a message for today uh, in today's world as well, uh, perhaps as uh, uh, as just providing sheer enjoyment. Well, it's really good to have you back with me again, Todd. Welcome back. Thanks, Jay. I uh, I appreciate the invite to come back on. Thank you very much. Well, it's uh, it's an invite that is uh, is you know really easy to make because it was such a pleasure talking to you before and because I enjoyed reading your book so much. <laughs> um, but but I do want to talk to you a little bit about about currency today and also your topic are two are two big to fail banks taking over, uh, and I'm not sure where you come down on that, but I hope I uh, hope you can tell us. Um, you know, uh, how, how much? Let's getting back to this to the story of uh, currency, though. First, if we could, sure. uh, how how much of the story um, of the lost gold? You know, I mean, it's mm-hmm. I don't know how much of this you want to tell the listeners because we don't want to give the story away. But it has to do with Captain Co- Captain Kidd coming across a huge amount of gold on the high seas from some Spanish ships that people, I guess, died of a disease. He gets the gold, and somehow it gets into the hands of Alexander Hamilton, and then somehow gets into the hands, well, uh, Hamilton and then to Aaron Burr uh, after Alexander's death, Alexander Hamilton's death. Um, so how, how much of this, how much can you tell us? How much are you willing to tell our listeners so that you get them to buy the book? Did I well, tell you know, much? Well, currency is, is historical fiction. It's, it's actually, as you know, several stories that start in the past and end up in the future, and I'm actually related to Aaron Burr. That's how I got the uh, idea. It's always been in the back of my mind to be a you know a great character in a novel. And I was traveling extensively throughout the Caribbean and spent a lot of time in St. Kitts and Nevis, where the Eastern European Central Bank is for the EC dollar. They manage their currency, and I would frequently go to the visit Nevis, stay there, or, or deal with the Bank of Nevis or whatever. And, and that's where Hamilton was born. So. Uh-huh. It all just kind of came together, and I always thought that would be a great plot of a novel somehow. And finally, on the train on the way to New York, I I wrote it over a two-year period. And uh, but, but yeah, I mean, what I wanted to do—you hit the nail on the head. I'm so happy about your reaction because I wanted it to be, first of all, just a great read and entertaining, but also to have a message. You know, not to be preachy, but to really. Uh, I guess educate people on the bond market, on interest rates, on reserve currencies, how it works, how could it affect us? Uh, so, so you wrote this on your you wrote this book essentially with your commutes down to New York City, mm-hmm. I guess, where you worked as a bond trader. Mm-hmm. Yep, and, and back and, and forth. One way. Ca- so it, uh, it it worked out well. Uh, and and your background, I mean, you you graduated from the Air Force uh, Academy. Uh, you, I guess you would have studied economics. What got you interested in, in finance then and then take a job in finance? Well, I've always been interested in finance since, a kid, since I was a kid. Uh, but the way I got into an investment bank is a little bit funny because I, was, I decided I'd wanted to leave the Air Force. I mean, you know, special ops helicopters is a, a young man's game, and I was turning 30. <laughs> and I wanted to, I guess, stop scaring myself and, and get a real job. And I... Uh, Went down to interview. I had an uncle who was very connected in business in Atlanta, and he set me up with a bunch of interviews, you know, consultants, uh, hospitals, attorneys, and investment banks. And I was sitting in the office of a 
an investment bank that's now part of Citigroup, and the guy looked at my resume and asked me what I flew, and I told him, and he said, look at the wall, and there was a picture of a an H-53 that he'd flown in Vietnam, and he said, you're hired. It was the same aircraft. <laughs> so that's how I got in the investment banking business. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the philosophical me- message, perhaps, in general mm-hmm. terms of currency with what's going mm-hmm. on today. Uh, y- y- could you just possibly elaborate on that a bit? Sure. Yeah, you know, the real message I wanted to get out to people is the association. And, and I, by the way, I think I'm one of the few people really making uh, an effort to discuss this nationally. I do a lot of speaking on this, and it's the connection between economic weakness and military weakness. And a lot of people Mm -hmm. just don't understand the consequences, one, of, you know, giving control, really, of our interest rate market to another country, or at least giving the ability to to affect that massively to someone else that, you know, may not like us and could be Mm -hmm. competitors economically or militarily at worst. And I just wanted to explain that and the consequences of debt and, you know, really look at history because this has all happened before. And, uh, you know, the the reason, uh, you know, people need to know about this is because 10 or 20 years from now, it's going to be too late. So we really have to deal with it now. And the book is an effort to try to talk with people about it and get them to understand the subject, but not to be preachy, but just to enjoy it. But at the end of the book, say, wow, we should really deal with this. Yeah, at the end of the book, we can't tell the people what, is at the end of the book, but it actually is uh, sort of a patriotic ending in which uh, Connor, that would be the person I'm talking to now, folks, uh, decides <laughs> that uh, that he is uh, that he is going to do the right thing uh, and uh, by his country, and so he doesn't. Uh, well, I don't know how much of a choice Connor would have had to run away with with uh, what he ended up with, but. Um, uh, but Connor did the right thing. And so um, I have to ask you, though, would you consider yourself to be more of a Hamiltonian or a Jeffersonian? I think you're more of a Hamiltonian. Well, you know, Hamilton wanted uh, you know, a strong central government, and I'm a little bit leery of that part of his philosophy. I, I, mm-hmm. I have read the Federalist Papers. I had a, a guy who was a naturalized citizen in, uh, from Venezuela, a good friend of mine, and I, I actually gave him a copy of the Federalist Papers. I said, you need to read this. And it really changed his life, and I think anybody who hasn't read that piece should. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and probably reread it every five years because it's just brilliant. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, But I am leery of the, the strong central government. Um, you know, I own a farm, so I have a little bit of... Uh, I guess, uh, you know, love for Jefferson's love of the agrarian sure. side of things. But, uh, you know... Um, the balance, I, maybe. I, yeah, the balance. Uh, but I do think, Todd, that, that you're right. I don't hear this discussion um, in the mainstream about um, this, this, this linkage between being financially strong and being militarily strong. It seems to me, I, I think, uh, I don't know if you would agree with this, but it seems to me I recall, and I can't... I haven't been to the Eisenhower Library, but uh, nor have I spent much time trying to dig into it electronically. I just haven't had the time. But it seems to me, I recall, because I'm an old enough guy to remember some of what Eisenhower said uh, or, or to have read it when I was a young man, that, um, that in fact, uh, he was very concerned about the parasite from within or the, the decay from within. And I gather that might have had to do with financial responsibility uh, and financial strength. And also, I think it's interesting to note that Eisenhower was the last president that had our gold hoard audited. Interesting. I didn't know that. 
Yeah, and it has not been it has not been audited yet. There's supposedly gold at West Point, the New York Federal Reserve, uh, at of course um, um, the other uh, the other major storage point, which uh, slips my memory right now, Fort Knox, uh, and and it has not been audited. So one of the things that uh, Ron Paul was trying for was to have an audit the Fed and have the gold. The gold would have been just one part of the Fed, Federal Reserve being mm-hmm. audited so the American people could have a real account of as to what is going on with the Federal Reserve. And uh, we're going to be talking to Ellen Brown later, who I know is very, very, very uh, concerned about the nature of the banking system now uh, in the hands of people that are not elected and who have uh, enormous control over money creation and, and uh, redistribution of wealth. Do you have any thoughts about that issue? I would agree with that. I think that there is, you call it a bubble, call it a loss of control, call it loss of sovereignty. I mean, because it's a huge issue. You know, one of the things I've been asked to speak about a lot on, on you know, media interviews recently was the whole Bitcoin phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, is elegantly brilliant in how no central authority can control it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Wall Street always has been, always will be, you know, full of conflict of interest. And, uh, you know, it's just almost, I don't want to use too strong a word, but disgusting seeing all the, you know, schlepping of stuff to people who don't know what they're buying because that's that's what happens. Uh, it's mm-hmm. just a fact of life on Wall Street. And it happens over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, people go to jail, but it still happens. Um, I'm a big believer in... Letting things fail, creative destruction, new ways of doing things coming right. online, and, and that's, you know, right now I, I think the bailouts prevented that, and not just the bailouts of the banks, but of the auto companies, et cetera. You know, we have new auto companies coming online. Let them flourish. Let them let the market provide or decide who's going to win, who's going to lose. Yeah. Well, that certainly was uh, what our country was about for a long time. There have always been those that don't like the harshness of the marketplace and would like to protect people, but then you get the element of politics involved. And certainly it seems to me that if we were back uh, at uh, a monetary system that our founders defined in the Constitution as uh, as a certain weight of gold and silver, that it would remove a lot of the political decisions that are being made. I mean, if I go back, as a, I remember so vividly 1971 when Nixon removed us from the gold system, when the you know, international gold standard, mm-hmm. and it seemed to me that that was clear enough the reason that was done was because somebody wanted to have a war in Vietnam. I don't know if it was necessary or not. It certainly there were questions about it that were not really being, I think, addressed except by, by kids that were being asked to go and die for their country. Uh, and, and, the, you know, and socialism and, and neither Johnson or Nixon or anybody else really wanted to tell the American people they're going to have to pay for those things. They were going to cost us something. And so we went off the gold standard and then um, the, the rest is history. I see that as the beginning, Todd, of the enormous amount of credit and debt that started to pile up and it, almost exponential growth. Um, do you see it that way? Was that a pivotal point for you? I do. And I, you know, I, we you know, you've read currency. I mean, and I, I do speak about that issue somewhat. That our currency has to be tied to something of value because otherwise you just have incentives to print money to buy votes to stay in power for whatever political party. And it, I mean, we're so out on the limb as far as, uh, you know, just really unsustainable policies and in the situation we have ourselves in with the debt, with uh, you know the, the the government interference in the financial markets. I mean, I think that's the 
the, one of the biggest issues that has to be tackled. And, and you're seeing the Obama administration start to push people to make you know non-commercial loans again. I mean, yeah. geez, I mean that's the definition of insanity to do something again that didn't work before. Right. Uh, you know, it, it creates bubbles. It creates. And, you know, and Wall Street is always going to sell it, but if, if you don't have a policy to force banks to make loans where they know they're going to lose money, I mean, then you won't give Wall Street that opportunity. I think that's the best way to regulate them is to let people fail and keep the mm-hmm. government out of the way. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely, you know, you certainly won't get any arguments from me or probably 90% of the guests on this show would feel the same way. Uh, the problem is, though, Todd, is that most people have been programmed somehow, in spite of the fact that we were supposed to be a free market, uh, free country, have been programmed to think in the opposite way these days, almost as if we were trained to be Marxists, it seems. But in any event, I think that you you are speaking to, uh, to various colleges and uh, various groups, I guess, these days, and it would seem to me that if you can help the kids understand this, it's certainly one of the things that Ron Paul has done in, uh, in speaking to universities and colleges where he is just really uh, adored and loved because I think people understand that he is, uh, that it's not about Ron Paul, it's about these issues that are bigger than him that are more important in terms of our future. And in terms of civil society, it seems to me, Todd, if you can uh, get this message, these these kinds of messages across that you will have done a great service for your country, probably as as great as you did flying those helicopters. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, it's it's all about just um, I guess getting people to listen. And I, you know, nobody wants to read a dry book about economics. So I thought maybe <laughs> if I threw pirates and gold and Captain Kidd in there, that maybe people would read it. So. Um, I, I well, I did. Your, your I, you got me as a person who doesn't read novels to read it. And admittedly, <laughs> I could see the link between my interest, my economic interest in your novel. So, you know, you mix a little bit of steamy sex in there, too. It sort of makes it interesting. <laughs> not too much, I might say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, it's not a trashy novel, but it's just enough to make, you know, I mean, that's the way life is, too. So it was, it was interesting. And I, I, um, I, I, but you've got another one coming also. And I, you know, before we get into some of the topics about the markets today and where you mm-hmm. think we're headed, Mm-hmm. I'd like to pick your brain on on some of those issues as well. But uh, your next novel is coming out, and you're almost finished with that. I believe it's called Sugar. Could you tell That's us a little right. about that? Yes. Um, well, it should be out. Uh, you know, I was hoping to have it out by the end of April, but it, I didn't make it. It's, it's still being finalized in the editing process, but it will be released in May, probably around you know in another ten days or so. But uh, you know, the history of sugar is fascinating, the production of sugar. I mean, you go from the, the slaves in, in the in Muslim conquest, the Crusades, um, the slaves in the Caribbean, the, the British slave trade, uh, you know, the, the production of sugar in the Caribbean uh, for a period of 100 or so years was more in, you know, currency-wise than all of the production of the U.S. colonies. And not many mm-hmm. people realize that. I mean, it, it really changed the world, or at least a part of the world, and drove a lot of the problems that we see today from, um, you know, we're still dealing, obviously, with the history of slavery and all that. It's still working itself out, and mm-hmm. it just it's just fascinating. So I thought that would be a great way to tie history into the novel, but at the end of the, really, at the end of the day, what is sugar? It's energy that is made from the sun and from the elements, but, um, you know, so it really morphs into a discussion of energy policy, and, and again, an entertaining way, and you know, I'm one of those that doesn't believe we, could, we should keep sending trillions of dollars to people who want to kill us. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, discussing 
how we could best proceed. And uh, the one optimistic saving grace that we have is, you know, 1.5 trillion barrels of oil under our feet. We just have to figure out an economical and a safe way of getting it out. Mm -hmm. Well, we're making some progress, it seems to me, uh, in some respects with, you know, with, with fracking and horizontal drilling, right? We are, and you know the book goes into that. Um, I, I will say it has a shocking ending. I won't obviously <laughs> say what it is, but uh, hopefully no one will see it coming. And, but it is a, uh, you know, it, it's going to. I'm actually a little worried about it because <laughs> I don't know what the reaction is going to be. But I'm going to throw it out there and see what people say. You're worried about the ending and the conclusion I, of the book. I, yeah, I'm worried about the, the just the reaction of the book. To, you know, people may get angry, but that's that's okay. You know, the next time uh, that I have you on after you publish this book, I'm going to read the novel first thoroughly, mm-hmm. cover to cover, and then have you come on so uh, so I can have a bit more of an intelligent discussion with you, hopefully, although we don't, as always, don't want to give it away. Um, first of all, tell people how they can read currency. Where can they get currency just now that while we're on that topic? Well, currency is available everywhere. It's it's on any online retailer, any electronic device, you know, Apple, Nook, Sony, Kindle, it, you can, if your bookstore doesn't have it, they can order it. It's going to be in airports nationwide, I think, um, if not this week, next week. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think it's a perfect uh, grab a book for the plane kind of book. Oh, absolutely. Um, when did you publish it? When did you first pu- When did, when it, did it hit the market? The electronic version came out in December of 11, and the uh, trade paperback came out in March of 12. So it's been out there for a while, but it, it takes a while for a book to get noticed and get traction and I think it's it's really starting to it's know, starting now huh? yeah yeah so I'm excited interesting about it. and my uh, website is com. you can get anything on there too eltodwood.com. Excellent. Right. Well, that's where people should go for sure. And also, I suppose you'll you'll be keeping people aware uh, through that website when uh, sugar is available as well. Yeah, they can see the cover there. Um, the cover is out. Uh, but yes. Um, it's, uh, Todd, do you? I suppose you do some trading for your own account. You you mentioned the last time we talked that you have a business. You're a small businessman. Um, mm-hmm. Is your business uh, is it publishing? Is it uh, finance? What a combination? No, or, or you know, I had emerging market uh, experience for almost 20 years. I traveled mm-hmm. a great deal, and I made a lot of friends and connections. And mm-hmm. when I left Wall Street to publish this book, because the attorneys would never let me do it. I actually thought about doing it anonymously for a while, but I, I didn't go that route. But uh, I, I decided to find a way to turn those connections into a business, and I started an import business, import-export. So I, I bring in interesting you know, things from around the world to sell to high-end hedge fund wives here in Connecticut and New York. <laughs> oh, very interesting. Oh, that's it's also interesting that uh, the lawyers wouldn't have allowed you to write the book. Um, it's, uh, it's sort of interesting. I worked as a uh, lending officer, as a, a credit analyst and lending officer for many years, and sort of uh, wrote a newsletter on on the side, uh, and it was sort of a delicate balance at times. So it's uh, I, I could understand that, I suppose. Um, well, let, let's talk a little bit about the markets then now. If you if maybe just get some of your opinions on sure. uh, on the markets, uh, equity markets. Are we nearing? Do you see a top, or do you think this thing can keep going? We keep pumping money into the system. Can we keep this equity market going up and up and up forever? Well, you know, I think I mentioned last time I, I was always good at not so much the day to day trading, but you know, is the market Bigger going picture. up today or down? You know, but really. 
I always had a feeling when something was way out of whack, you know, like the NASDAQ at uh, 4,000 and change or, or the, the real estate market or, uh, you know, the credit bubble we had back in 06, 07 just rubbed me the wrong way. And yes, the equity market could keep going, but that doesn't mean I want to put my money in it just because I'm scared of it. I'm scared of the bond market. I saw what happened in 1994 when interest rates spiked. People who thought they were safe lost 30% overnight. And in their bond fund or their, you know, you know, those type of securities. And I think the equity markets are at risk as well. I mean, I'm, I'm really hesitant. I, the only thing I trade right now is the VIX. I think, you know, it's, it's interesting when, when the volatility gets too low. You know, I put a train on uh, this morning, actually, just because I thought that, uh, it, you know, it was, the complacency was way too, too high. You said the VIX is, did I hear you right? Yeah, mm-hmm. Uh huh. Yeah. Interestingly enough, interesting uh, uh, Charles uh, Nanner, uh, who we've uh, we, we talked to through David Gerwitz, who was on the show earlier today, a longtime trader, uh, market analyst at Goldman Sachs, a few days ago, uh, was suggesting buying uh, some, um, uh, you know, buying some volatility uh, mm-hmm. through a vehicle. And uh, well, it, the trade hadn't worked too well. Uh, we were, I guess, we would have been better to buy it today rather than a week ago when Charles suggested we did because the markets moved higher. But you never know, and as you say um you know it's uh, things get out of whack and yeah there were lots of us had the feeling you know but it's just difficult sometime when everybody's partying right to uh, right. to go home early well it is but you know you have to take your you know your chips and take and get off the table you know i mean it's when you know it's wrong it, it could go for a while but you're okay if you stay safe and, and look for things that nobody else wants that's one thing i learned on the street was Buy things when nobody wants it, when there's blood in the streets, and sell it when everybody wants it. So, uh, you know, that's that's the way I try to discipline myself, but I'm not always that good at it. It's really hard then to get back in at the bottom. It's very difficult. We've just had uh, this radio show, and my newsletter uh, is very much involved with gold and silver. Mm-hmm. We had uh, we had an unbelievable run for some ten years, um, and you know, ten years in a row. I don't know many markets that have actually managed to go up ten years in a row. So you would think uh, it would be a, a pullback here in 2013 wouldn't be out of the would wouldn't would be more normal than not uh and and yet uh, do you have a view long term on gold as long as uh, we continue to create endless amounts of money do you think there's some upside yet for gold or or what do you have a sense of well, it well i'll just say you know one thing 20 trillion dollars <laughs> i you know th- th- yes i think that gold is a fantastic buy at this point just because you know Yes, it's it's a nice correction, and it's better to buy on a dip like this. But we've got so many problems, and until we start seeing some serious resolution of those issues, what else is there to buy besides real estate and you know some other commodities? In my opinion, you don't buy bonds. Yeah, uh, you know, we're yeah. paying an artificially low rate. You know what's our? You know, I was talking to some people today at this uh, event I spoke at, and and mm-hmm. you know we're paying. What around one percent, maybe less on our bond portfolio? What's our duration? Five to seven years of the U.S. Yeah, yeah, it's something like that. We'll it's, pay, it's ridiculous. We'll it doesn't make any 1%. sense. 
Even if you believe the government's inflation numbers, which I don't, I don't know if you have a, a, a view of that or not, but uh, we've had John Williams, economist John Williams, on this show that believes the inflation rate is closer to 8 or 9%. If you were to count inflation as we did pre-Reagan, uh, before we started using substitution of hamburger for for steak or dog food for hamburger or, let's say, hedonic pricing measures that they've built in so that all of the extra gadgets you have on your car now means that you are uh, paying a lot less for that car now because you have all those extra things so they reduce the real cost of the car. That uh, It seems to me that the cost of staying alive, Mrs. Taylor and I don't believe for a minute it's the 1.7%. So, you know, Williams is suggesting that we've never really come out of the recession yet if you really look at that, uh, at inflation in that way instead of the governments. But I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to get optimistic about this economy at the same time, isn't it? Oh, it is. I mean, there, you can look at it both ways. I'm very optimistic if, if we make some good decisions. That's mm-hmm. a huge if. But if we could get some responsibility in government and in our policymaking and you know, as a side note, I think it, at its core, Marxism is just extreme res- irresponsibility. I mean, it's the, it's the refusal to do the right thing and enjoy, you know, the short-term whatever. And But if we can get some serious reform in government, I think the American economy would bounce back extremely fast. But if we don't, you know, this is the greatest crisis we've ever faced. Yeah. You know, uh, here we are, Todd, again, and I'm realizing that I've only got a couple of minutes left, and I never mm-hmm. even got to this whole issue of too big to fail banks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so are they – what about – are they taking over? Well, I would say they're definitely too big to fail, and they need to be reined in. Uh, you know, I can remember when Sandy Weil broke down the Glass-Steagall. I was there talking to him in 1992. Early 90s, I don't know exactly what year, and in my office, and he was not talking to me specifically, but talking to our office and talking about what he was going to do and bring down Glass-Steagall and make this huge conglomerate, and I remember thinking that's not going to end well, and it hasn't, and I, I'll say it again, I'm a firm believer in creative destruction and letting people fail, and if, you, if people thought that their jobs and their stock portfolios and their, you know, their, their country club memberships and their status in society was on the line, they'd make much better decisions. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's uh, certainly would be an agreement with you there, and it seems to me that if we are going to provide FDIC insurance uh, to banks, that they shouldn't be uh, engaging in gambling casinos and privatizing profits and then socializing losses, which is what they've uh, clearly have done. I, complete, with, I completely agree. Yep. With, the re- with the removal of Glass-Steagall, I know Ellen Brown feels that way uh, very, very uh, strongly as well. So there, there, there's really an awful lot more that we could cover, but I see that we are just about out of time. Uh, so do you think there's a time, let me just ask you this, though, before we go, uh, a way to perhaps make money on the short side when the long treasuries turn around, an ETF perhaps or something? Um, you know, I, I'm not sure what the best vehicle would be there. I kind of yeah. caught me off guard on that one. Um, uh, you know, I mean, is it something you've given some thought to, or do you think it might be unpatriotic to short the treasuries? I have not done that, uh, you know, which is strange because I'm a bond, or an ex-bond trader, but I, I just, yeah. I, I really had a lot of exposure in clients dealing with the VIX, and I, I did facilitate a lot of that. So that, I kind of use that as a proxy mm-hmm. to all markets, and it, it makes it easy. I don't have to study a lot of different things. Well, just when I feel that the, vol- the complacency has gotten too high or too low, you know, I put on a trade, and that, that tends to work for me. Well, 
Well, that's that's uh, everybody has to figure out for themselves. But I I, I appreciate your uh, your ideas today. It's always good to talk to you, Todd. Thank you so much. Uh, really enjoy the novelist Todd Wood. Uh, and uh, a lot of great economic advice. Thanks uh, for your good work also that you're doing. Again, the website where people can follow you is uh, ltoddwood.com, I guess is the best place, right? That's right. Every every link you need is there, and uh, my bio, everything. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Todd. And also, uh, as soon as Sugar comes out, I want to get a copy of it and then uh, have you back on again to talk about that. Would love to. Thanks. I really appreciate the support, Jay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Todd. Uh, Folks, don't go away. We'll be right back. Ellen Brown is going to talk to you about how you can protect yourself from the eventual likelihood that our government may very well rob you just as the the government, the people in Cyprus were robbed of their bank accounts. It seems as though the politicians uh, have taken a lot of heat for asking taxpayers to bail out banks. And so what are they going to do? Well, those people that have enough money left in their accounts, they may be very vulnerable. Ellen Brown is going to talk to us about that. We didn't get to everything we needed to talk to her about last week, so she's going to come back and, uh, and fill in the blanks that we missed last week. Don't go away. I'll be right back with Ellen Brown. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Windfall profits happen frequently in gold exploration stocks, but the risk of losses are also common. Miranda Gold enhances prospects of shareholder gains by combining the intellectual capital of geologists, mine finders Ken Cunningham and Joe Herbert with other people's hard dollars in search for elephant-sized gold deposits in politically safe places like Nevada and Columbia. That keeps shareholder dilution to a minimum, so when discoveries are made, major gains are possible. For more, go to MirandaGold.com. Nevada Gold Corporation controls 18 exploration and development properties covering nearly 50 square miles in Nevada's well-known gold trends. Its flagship Wind Mountain Gold Silver Project is 100% owned and had an independent updated resource estimate and positive preliminary economic assessment in early 2012. This past September, Bravada signed an agreement with Argonaut Gold to further explore and develop Wind Mountain. For further information, please visit bravadagold.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have back with me again this week, Ellen Brown. She was here last week, but there were a couple of important issues that we did not get to discuss uh, that I think are very, very important that we do. So I'm really pleased that Ellen could join us again this week. Welcome back, Ellen. Thank you, Jay. Ellen, I want to review a, a couple of major points you made last week, as I said, but to make sure that I do not forget this time, I want to ask you about a very important conference that is being put on by the Public Banking Institute. First, tell us, what is the Public Banking Institute all about? What is its purpose? Um, and uh, if you could just explain that to us. 
Well, we're just a group of volunteers who are um, trying to shed light on the idea or spread information on the idea that we could fix this banking crisis by turning banking into a public utility. Not necessarily all of it, but the, but those big important things such as the two big to fails that we seem to be underwriting anyway, if we mm-hmm. have to underwrite them, we should be, have some control over them, which means they should be operating basically as public utilities. But it's kind of a complicated subject, and so that's why we have to do a lot of writing and talking. And, and we do have, uh, so far, 20 states have introduced bills of one sort or another for publicly owned banks. And in, in most states, we have a group that approaches their legislators and tries to get get something going. So we're just kind of an activist group trying to trying to fix the problem. Although of course we're interested in other issues too, but all all economic issues. And so we have a conference coming up June second to fourth in San Rafael, California. Um, all the details are on our website, publicbankinginstitute.org. It's headlined on that um, homepage. And it's our um, um, keynote speaker is Matt Taibbi on Sunday night. There's a kickoff thing on Sunday night, and then uh, it will also feature Birgitta Johnstadtir, who's the um, Iceland um, legislator who Ooh. was instrumental in standing up to the banks in Iceland and just showing what the people can do if they get organized and protest. And well, our, our appell- go ahead. I, I was going to say I'd love to meet that man. I, I think I'm going to have to oh, try it's a to... woman. <laughs> oh, a woman. And the name is what again? Birgitta. Birgitta Ber- Johnstadtir. Well, I've you know I've been interested in knowing and and following up on the Iceland situation because it seems to me those those people really did what the what other countries should be doing. But uh, the web of debt, I might mention to our listeners again, the web of debt is is just a very easy it's it's an easy read of a very difficult subject I think for most people. But Alan, I was just paging through this again today uh, and. I think it lays it out extremely well, easy for everybody to understand. And, you know, one quote from that book um, that was from Lewis McFadden, the chairman of the House Banking and Currency Committee in 1932, he said, and I quote, The sack of the United States by the Fed is the greatest crime in history. Every effort has been made by the Fed to conceal its powers, but the truth is the Fed has usurped the government, end of quote. And that's that's really what we're talking about, isn't it? Trying to get people to have some control over their own bank, over their banking system, rather than becoming enslaved, as we seem to have become enslaved uh, in the Western world. Right. We've we've got the impression that money is a thing in itself, and if you don't have it, you you know you have to have it to make money, et cetera. But really, money is just a medium of exchange. It's just a credit system, and to have a credit system, you really need a public some sort of public engine to generate it. So, so banking is really something just like highways and um, electrical power, etc. It's just it's part of the infrastructure that keeps our whole economy functioning properly. So mm-hmm. we've got the goods, we've got the materials. I mean, we've got the materials, we've got the workers, we've got the brains. But the only thing we don't have is the credit or the ability to get them together and to work and to pay them for the work. 
so that they can produce a product. So we well, need a more efficient way to do it than what we have right now. Right, and we talked a little bit about the Bank of North Dakota, which I, I gather is a a sort of a model that you believe is workable and, and certainly has worked for a long time. That, that bank's been in existence for a long time, seems to be doing quite well in terms of providing uh, the capital required for growing uh, and providing a medium uh, of exchange for people uh, in North Dakota. Um, is, that the, is that kind of the model that you see as an ideal model? Right. Well, it's the only one we've got, <laughs> but it's a great model, and it's been around since 1919. They're doing really well. They're the only state that escaped the credit crisis. Uh, they sported a, a very nice budget surplus every year since 2008. They, the bank itself had a return on equity of 19% to mm-hmm. 26% during all those years, and they've kicked back a very substantial dividend to the state. So. For one thing, all the profits are going to the people, to the state. So they're mm-hmm. they're taking their own re- revenues, putting them in this bank, and leverage them, leveraging their capital into lots of credit for the state itself. Instead of sending that credit potential off to Wall Street to leverage into whatever you know derivatives and all those things that are actually hurting us, and they. They pay very modest salaries for their, I mean, their CEO's salary compared to your average on Wall Street is, it's like 200000 and something. Mm-hmm. I forget what, but yeah. quite modest. Sure. Yeah. So, and they don't have bonuses, fees, commissions. In other words, they're just operating on a totally different standard, which is to do what's good for the state instead of doing, doing the bottom line for, for the uh, CEOs and the shareholders. So, they don't, I mean, the shareholders are the state. Yeah, instead of using sort of the robber baron techniques of the of the J.P. Morgan, uh, Chase, uh, uh, Bank of America, Citicorp types, where they're using all kinds of complicated derivatives to pick people's pockets and to get extremely insane, uh, uh, ridiculously high bonuses at the end of the year, they're really more of a utility uh, entity that is helping the people and doing just carrying out normal. Banking functions, you know, Alan. What it seems to me is happening with our current existing system is that it is a system for a, it's a gaming system, if you will. Uh, it's not a, a, an awful lot like unlike going to Las Vegas, where the house uh, makes the rules and picks people's pockets systemat- systematically. It seems to me that's what's been going on. And as you explained last week, uh, actually, uh, you know, this whole thing that that flared up in Cyprus is is a threat and you explained and we don't have time to go into all that today you explained that that is a threat to everybody in the western world in fact it is a model that is being laid out there uh, to be utilized against all of us but I do have one question with respect to last week's conversation in Cyprus I believe in Cyprus it was to be only upper income people that had their had their deposits taken from them or was it everybody well, it was only the uninsured depositors. Originally, they went after the insured depositors. It was the Troika, you know, unelected. Yes. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't the legislators of Cyprus. And yeah. so the Cyprus legislature refused. They said, no way are we giving up our, you know, the depositors' money. And so then the Troika just went after the uninsured deposits as they were able to do without they still the legislature still didn't approve it but for some reason they were able to do that much so they're taking i think the last i saw it was 40% of wow. the uh, 
of the, that money. And so some of them are, it, people aren't too sympathetic because some of them actually are uh, Russian oligarchs and people uh, escaping taxes. Right. But that also includes the pension funds, which are ordinary people, yeah. um, re- regular businesses, that ha- local businesses that need that money f- to pay their workers, et cetera. Oh. So. Well, it seems to me to be a destruction of capital that could be used for growing an economy, but that's another subject. What, do you, you explained, and maybe just go over this quickly yet with the last couple of minutes we have left, to talk about why the Bank of North Dakota is... Uh, would be less risky for depositors than, say, the mainstream big money center banks in the United States? Um, well, for one thing, it's not FDIC insured, which is actually a good thing, <laughs> because you could envision if Bank of America or J.P. Morgan goes down, and you know they've got a trillion dollars in deposits, and let's say they had a huge derivatives bust, which and the derivatives claimants go first, so they'd get all the money. So the FDIC would say, well, it's our responsibility, and so they'd have to drum up a trillion dollars from all their member banks. That's in theory. I'm sure they wouldn't do that because it would break all the banks. But anyway, they could conceivably, they've done done it before, a big assessment. Like in 2008, mm-hmm. they did a very big assessment, oh, 2009, a very big assessment to make up for $8 billion in losses. They were $8 billion in the hole. So that's one reason. But also... The Bank of North Dakota just doesn't speculate. They don't do derivatives. They bank very conservatively because they have no, no reason to. They don't, mm-hmm. they're not gonna, they, they personally aren't gonna make any profits off it. Their job mm-hmm. is actually contingent on doing a good job for the state, not making money for themselves. And as the bank president said, if we don't understand it, we don't do it. <laughs> right. Well, you know, Alan, that reminds me so much of what banking was before Glass-Steagall was taken away from us, the commercial banking sector of our banking system, and you had the investment banks that always did more risky things. It was a higher risk, higher return business model. The commercial banks were very, very steady, nothing spectacular, but we didn't have all the problems we had until we brought in, until we uh, tore down the walls of Glass-Steagall, and, you know, I'm a person who doesn't relish government regulation, but I think if you're going to uh, provide insurance for banks, uh, FDIC insurance, and then turn around and, and tax the, t- the, uh, the taxpayer, uh, something is wrong with that if you allow banks to engage in all kinds of uh, high-risk, high-return activities and then, you know, socialize the losses and privatize the gains. It's just, I mean, it's just, it's just outrageous. And so uh, I really, I really respect what you're doing and I hope we can do what we can to uh, uh, to give your organization a push, as, as modest as it may be. I, I hope we can, because I'm extremely sympathetic. Tell our listeners once again, um, tell our listeners once again, the your conference is, is scheduled when and where and how they can get a hold of, uh, learn more about it and follow up on it. It's June 2nd to 4th in San Rafael, California, the Bay Area. Um, our website is publicbankinginstitute.org. And my website for my articles is webofdebt.com. Excellent. Very good. Well, uh, just one last question, Ellen. What should people do now? Should they, I mean, if this whole thing is true, that Cyprus, we could all be Cyprused. I guess that's a verb we can use now. We'll be, we could, we'll be Cyprused. Uh, if they're going to Cyprus us, does it mean that, that we, should we take our money out and put it under the mattress? Should we uh, buy some CDs? Uh, I think you suggested that might be a possibility at the Bank of North Dakota. What 
what should we do? Well, CDs would, at Bank of North Dakota is a great idea. Uh, credit unions, I think, are pretty... The problem with credit unions is that, first of all, they're small. So if you have the type of dealings that are, uh, you know, across state borders or mm-hmm. international, whatever, it's just not going to help. Right. But besides that, they do use correspondent banks, and their mm-hmm. money could wind up overnight in a big bank that went bust. And yeah. that's also true for, like, I just called on Scott Trade because... I have money in Scott Trade, and mm-hmm. they said, yep, they use overnight sweeps, and that money goes into the Wall Street Bank. Uh, all right. Well, I mean, it is, it is a very difficult, uh, it is a very, um, very high-risk world we're living in these days, I think, much more difficult than it once was. But I thank you very much, Ellen, for doing your good work and, and, and for coming on the show and sharing insights with our listeners once again. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with a wrap-up on today's show and also tell you who's coming with us next week. Don't go away. I'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. Paramount Gold is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce advanced stage gold and silver projects in the mining-friendly jurisdictions of Nevada and northern Mexico, backed by a strategic investor and a strong balance sheet. An experienced management team has completed preliminary economic assessments on both projects, showing robust economics and immense potential for increasing ounces and mine life. For more information, go to ParamountGold.com or follow on Twitter, PZGNews. Sandgold is an aggressive gold company operating in Manitoba, Canada, a top-ranked gold mining region. Sandgold's most recent gold discovery, the Shoreline Basalt Mining Unit, is already in production at more than 75,000 ounces per year. And Sandgold continues to pursue nearby targets within one of Manitoba's most prospective gold mining trends, the Rice Lake Gold Belt. Discover the potential at Sandgold. Trading symbol is SGRCF on the OTCQX and SGR on the Toronto Exchange. Visit our website at www.sandgold.ca. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and uh, of course, that is the challenge that we have in front of us is trying to turn hard times into good times. I suppose uh, that for most people, um, the good times are returning, at least let's say most people that 
have money in the market. Most of the people uh, in Wall Street and in government uh, think things are just fine. And uh, I suppose for Wall Street with uh, the major indices hitting new highs, that's exactly the, the truth for them. Uh, the big problem is that throughout our economy, things are not very good. And uh, there is a disconnect. Even the mainstream pundits are talking about the disconnect between Wall Street and high stock prices and uh, um, a thinning middle class, the masses of Americans who are making it, uh, finding it more and more difficult to make ends meet. I would really like to know your response, those of you who listen to this show. If you want to send any response to, to this question, do you believe that uh, that the inflation rate that the government gives us is accurate, 1.7%. Do you believe that your cost of living has gone up only 1.7% over the last 12 months, let's say? Uh, or do you think it's closer to what John Williams talks about, which is around 8%, 9%, somewhere in that range? Well, I can tell you that I... My biased view is more towards John Williams. I talked to Mesh Shedlack in Chicago a week ago or so, and uh, actually last weekend, and Mish doesn't agree with me. Mish uh, is pretty much buying the government's numbers. Uh, I don't, I can't see that. If we, uh, if we measure inflation in terms of what the same basket of goods and services as we had in the past, uh, there's no way in my view. Now, if you want to do, if you want to try to measure, um, the value of a car, then okay, fine. You're getting more of a car when you pay uh, when you buy a car now than you did in the past, but that doesn't mean you're paying less for it. It means you have a lot of bells and whistles on there that you don't need to have on your car to go from point A to point B. But nonetheless, the uh, people that play with the numbers at the Bureau of Labor Statistics decide that you don't need to really, um, or, or that that is an important reduction of, of price in your in your automobile. Uh, if you uh, want to eat hamburger, why should you eat steak? Uh, for that matter, if dog food will keep you alive, why do you need to eat hamburger? That's the concept and the idea between uh, behind substitution. So they're playing games with the CPI, in my view, and um, you know it's it's they're not comparing apples to apples. And I think that's what John Williams seeks to do with his uh, with his alternative statistics. And to me, that's no small deal. In fact, I'm going to be talking uh, in New York uh, at the uh, conference, the Metals and Mining Conference, coming up next week. Uh, a couple of different occasions I'll be talking. I'll be talking exactly about that, uh, the effect of inflation on uh, on the numbers. In fact, if you use John Williams' inflation numbers, we've never really come out of the recession. And that, to me, is what is really the story for most of America. So Wall Street is doing very well, seems to be doing very well. Um, you know that the 1% is getting richer and richer, but it's uh, parasitically being taken from uh, from average Americans. And I think the guest that we had today, Todd Wood, certainly does understand that. Not only does Todd Wood understand that uh, Americans are not doing well, but more importantly, as an ex-military guy, he understands the connection between a healthy economy and a strong defense. Uh, I think Todd Wood, more than anybody else I've had on this show, makes that connection. If you want to have a strong defense, you have to have a strong economy. So, And he also is very sympathetic to an honest monetary system as being necessary to have a strong economy uh, and a strong currency. So going back to the gold standard, in fact, I've asked Todd now twice if he didn't agree with me that 1971, when Nixon took us off the gold standard, was a pivotal moment in terms of the decline of America's strength and economic viability. Certainly, we've been able to live on the past, and we've really enjoyed some some 
some great times, but we're doing it at the expense of the future because we're borrowing against future income. And that is really going to be a tragedy for America. Todd believes, as do some others, that there might still be time, but we'd have to make some quick changes. And I, uh, I, I'm not qual- all that optimistic that we're going to make them because I think people aren't ready and willing to look at the actual truth. You know, turning hard times into good times requires us to be uh, knowledgeable about what the facts are, knowledgeable about what the truth is. And if you don't want to face up to the truth, then you can't improve yourself. You can't really make things better. And that's really, I think, uh, at the heart of the problem. We've got, uh, as Todd Wood said, the definition of insanity is repeating the same problem, uh, the same solutions over and over when they don't work. And yet that's what our Federal Reserve is doing. Not only does it not work since Lehman Brothers, it didn't work in the 1930s, but they don't learn. They want to keep doing the same thing, I suppose, because it benefits the people that are doing it. Uh, they are able to create money, bail out their friends, uh, and, and leave the rest of the American people uh, in debt uh, far into the future with taxes uh, to pay off uh, you know, the, the sins of the past uh, that not committed by the general populace but by the people that are in power and running the Federal Reserve and our government. So uh, the buying of influence, and I might just mention if you Google Jeffrey Sachs, look for, an, uh, for a lecture that he gave to the Federal Reserve about the corruption that's going on in the United States today. It is absolutely abysmal. It is, it is criminal from the top down. It's just incredibly evil, the system we have in place now, in my view. Well, Ellen Brown would certainly agree with all of that as well, and I'm really thankful to Ellen for coming on and talking to us a little bit today about uh, the, the issues of, uh, uh, of our financial system and of the banking system, and I think her idea of the Bank of North Dakota makes an awful lot more sense than the current system that we have that has the banks being owned by some very rich and powerful multinational banking families that, in fact, were at the heart of the creation of the Federal Reserve and are still seeking to use the Federal Reserve to control uh, us and our lives. Uh, that's sort of a summary of what we talked about today. I should mention Dynacor Gold Mines, uh, a sponsor of this show last season, uh, just came up with some really interesting discovery on his Tumipampa property. And Dynacor is making lots of money, doing very well. Uh, and it has this other project uh, that I think is very exciting. Next week, I will be uh, talking to Yale professor Jonathan Macy uh, about his book, The Death of Corporate Reputation. And I'm also going to be talking, along with Bob Unger, to Israeli Knesset member Moshe Faglin, who some believe could become the Prime Minister of Israel sometime in the near future. He has been called the Ron Paul of Israel. So you're not going to want to miss next week uh, my interview with those two individuals, Yale professor John Math- Jonathan Macy and Israeli Knesset member Moshe Faglin. We're out of time. Thanks, Tacey Trump. Thanks, Matt Widener, for making this show economically viable. Thank you, uh, or I say st- strategically viable. Thanks to each of you for listening. Till next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.